0: with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The annual count of homeless on the street and in shelters was delayed here on Oahu due to the pandemic. The results released last week show fewer people in shelters as shelter space has shrunk and more homeless on the streets. We sat down with Laura Thielen, executive director of the organization Partners in Care, which conducted the count in March. Thielen has her sights set on the funding that state lawmakers
1: have appropriated to deal with our housing crisis we're all happy that the point in time count is over and now we can get to the work of analyzing it and really figuring out where are our gaps and what do we need to do and uh, in it's been a good session overall. We've had a surplus in at the state legislature of funding so we're really looking at multiple layers of how to address the issue of homelessness and one of the most crucial parts is to actually build affordable housing. So there's quite a bit of money going towards Towards that. Also looking at DHHL to try and get more funding for those beneficiaries that have been on the wait list for so long. So that's going to be the most important thing for us to go do moving forward is really figure out where all the gaps are. But I think it's very loud and clear that housing is healthcare. And we can especially say that over the last couple of years that people are much safer if they are able to stay in their homes and be able to quarantine themselves and isolate themselves if and when they get sick so that that's not spread around our entire community. So housing is essential.
0: And you know, I was driving by the uh, housing there on Nimitz Highway and was just thinking, wow, you know, it was a vision, somebody's idea to put housing there for families with children. There's a preschool there. The folks have access to jobs. And I thought, you know, we do need to pat ourselves on the back because we are doing things and there are positive things. And so when you have families, fewer families in the shelters because they're in in homes, I mean that's a good
1: thing. Yeah, I think overall we can we can say that there are many successes within our community. I think what we really need to do is boost all of them up because every single person and family has a different story and a different pathway into housing and into, into the rest of their lives and so we really need to figure out all of the programs that are doing really well and really support them to boost their capacity and then look at the programs that maybe are not doing as well are not correcting the problems that we're seeing through our data and adjust so that they can be successful. We did have a a slight decrease in the overall point-in-time count. We had 4,448 in 2020, and we counted on March 10th, we counted 3,951. So what we're really seeing is we saw a decrease in the number of folks in shelters, And part of that is because of depopulation due due to COVID, but it's also because of their hard work getting people into permanent housing. But we did see an increase in the unsheltered population. So when people are saying, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot more folks, I think that's a combination of them, uh, not as many people being out as there were pre-COVID, but also because uh, they're they're not able to access the shelters. Uh, there's not as many beds. Several programs have shut down over the last two years, including like Villages of Miley. The Family Assessment Center has begun to close, and the next Step shelter is scheduled to close. So and those two
0: are in Kaka'ako.
1: Yes, those two are in Kaka'ako, and even though they're on the last stages of closing, they stopped taking participants several months ago so that they wouldn't just be pushed out on the last day. So understandable, but we've seen a lot of changes within our community over the last two years.
0: And you had mentioned earlier uh, to me that uh, you did a kind of a heat map. Yes. That was interesting. To tell our listeners about that. Yeah,
1: so our point in time count was done using a survey app on phones and iPads, and so there's no more writing of all of these surveys and observations. So our team of over 300 people went out on the morning of the 10th to see where people were sleeping the night before. And it was GIS locating services and so for every single person that was interviewed, we were able to see where they were on the island of Oahu and we created a heat map to show where there were big pockets of folks that we were counting and where there might be some differences. And so, you know, we are never going to be able to count every single person that's out there during these counts and so it's important to remember that this is a snapshot. This is one data point that we use to really address the issue, but it's an important one so that we can really see where are the groups of people, where do we need to put more effort, and where did we not pay attention to. And so um, what are you seeing?
0: Where have the bodies kind of dispersed to?
1: Well, we're seeing more and more people spreading into residential areas. You know, a few years ago, that wasn't so much of the case. We're also seeing the most recent cleanup of Chinatown and the enforcement of weed and seed in that area. There was a significant drop in that small area in Chinatown. By looking at the data so far, it looks like a lot of folks moved just outside of those areas. So we're going to do a deeper dive to really figure out, are those the same people that were in Chinatown, and if they are, what do we need to do to get them not just moved away from a certain area, but actually into housing or into treatment. So that would be in areas like in Evil a or in yeah. other parts of mm-hmm. downtown? Yep, and some of the services have moved into the Ivole area over the last several months, so that was definitely a dramatic change that's occurred in the last you know, several months. But I'd also like to point out that even though we we saw a slight decrease, Everybody kind of expected there to be a huge surge right after the eviction moratorium was lifted and just due to COVID. And although I'd love to see our numbers go down significantly more, I think we dodged a big bullet. During COVID, we had several COVID-related funding sources come into the state. And one program alone, the Oahu Housing Now program, housed over 800 people. So those were 800 literally homeless folks who were not on the streets over the last year. So not only did we benefit from them not having a lower rate of getting sick, but we also got them off the streets. And so that's a really important factor to bring in here is that during COVID, every single program continued to work. Every single program continued to try and find housing for folks and treatment services. So although some of us were, were kept at home and couldn't work and some people lost their jobs and and all that horrible stuff, we were lucky that we were able to still function as a community serving those who are experiencing homelessness.
0: You know, when we last talked to Scott Murshige, the state homes coordinator, it was not long after oh, there was a couple that was uh, sleeping in their car on the side of the mm-hmm. road and uh, it was a freak accident and somebody hit yeah. the car and, and they died. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I just was wondering about, you know, did we count everybody, you know, living in their cars? I mean, I know the Big Island, I think, has a, a program where a church has opened up their a lot safe and a mm-hmm. safe place to mm-hmm. park. What do we know about Oahu and people living in their cars?
1: Well, Family Promise actually made a big effort this year prior to the count to try and, uh, you know, a lot of families live in, in vehicles. And so they actually put a lot of effort into locating those folks prior to the count and encouraging them to be in a certain area, or or where they were at that time during the morning of the count. So we did get some of those, but that is a very difficult group of population that we struggle with counting and and just as an example, yesterday I got a call from a gentleman. He just lost his housing a couple months ago with some family members and they actually rented a U-haul and they're staying in the back of a U-haul. There's no way that I would be able to count those folks. So there's always going to be those kinds of things, but trying to get safe places, for parking is definitely something that's on our radar and we're hoping to see if we can do something like that here on Oahu. Yeah, I mean, I was out
0: down by um, Camp Erdman, yeah, noticed uh, several cars parked on the side, and, and it was very early in the morning on a bike ride. But yeah, you, you yeah. know, you could tell they were, you know, not camping on the
1: beach. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you just kind of wondered about their situation. It's really unfortunate, and a lot of times what, what happens is those are usually cars that are not running so well, and so if they get stuck or they don't have their registration up to date the one thing that they have could be taken away from them. And so that's, you know, we, we want people to be as safe as possible. And, you know, cars do afford you some safety, but, you know, we need to get folks off of the streets.
0: And so what are you uh, looking forward to with the passage of uh, legislation this past session? I know that a lot of bills are waiting for the governor's signature, but mm-hmm. what
1: are you most hopeful for? Well, I'm most hopeful that we can create a plan that's really addressing all levels of housing, that's needed to be built. We've got certain things at the city level as well as at the state level that are enabling developers to start the process. We need to encourage that, and we need to encourage those developers to work in tandem with programs to really figure out prior to the building how to make it functional for different groups of folks. Are we going to be looking at just a project-based program, or are we looking at trying to get developers to accept vouchers, those kinds of things. We need to help developers with the city and with the state figure out how to make those projects pencil out. Because if they don't pencil out, they're not going to be built. And so we need to make those efforts.
0: And, you know, we have seen some uh, proposals for affordable rentals. Mm -hmm. You know, DHHL, I think their project over there at the old Bullodrome, you know, that is moving along. There are some other projects with affordable rentals that are also on the, on, on paper at least, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. so we're headed in that direction. But, you know, I, I know at one time they talked about, well, do we do the old Coheo Park Terrace model with, you know, tall towers, mm-hmm. or we do something uh, lower yeah. scale?
1: I think we do a little bit of everything, and I think one of the things that we should be able to jump on as quickly as possible is there are a lot of properties that are owned either by the state or the city that are vacant right now, and, you know, we've, we've started getting those lists, and we really need to figure out can we get these up and running as quickly as possible because first of all those are sitting vacant which usually turns into a little bit of a mess if they're dilapidated for too long. Years ago when state hospitals were closing and affordable housing was getting harder and harder to see and find in our community that's also the time that some of the military bases started shutting down. And so I'm I'm very pleased to see that we have used some military facilities for some different projects, especially out at Barber's Point. But we let a lot of those buildings get dilapidated and never get used. And so rather than recreating the wheel, let's take a stab at looking at what can we put into place quickly and take up the the vacancies that are already out there.
0: Hopefully we do that,
1: (laughs) (laughs) but thank you so much. Thank you.
0: That was Laura Thielen of Partners in Care, which just issued its report on the snapshot of homelessness in Oahu shelters and on the streets. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
2: Onihoa, Kulehua,
3: Onihao, Ukahua, Oa, Umulogai, Ulana, Umau,
0: Ukolae, Ohavai. Interesting border choices give each of our country states unique shapes. The narrowest part of any state is located in Hancock, Maryland, where it's less than two miles wide from border to border. And the widest U.S. state, well, that would be Alaska. It spans 2,700 miles at its widest. But the state that comes in second might surprise you. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us what the second widest state in the country is? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. <music>
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neiread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeireadHawaii.com.
0: The Jones Act is more than 100 years old, and recently Representative Ed Case began calling for a year long exemption from the maritime legislation because of the rising inflation and in fuel costs. The legislation restricts cargo between U.S. ports to U.S. owned and built vessels. We recently talked to the Shippers Council, which represents a couple dozen shippers like grocery chains and the Cattlemen's Association, about why it believes an exemption isn't the answer, rather an overhaul of the act is. Here's
2: Mike Hansen. The Jones Act requirements make it very expensive to ship things. And often we don't have the kind of vessels that are needed to move a particular kind of cargo. For example, cattlemen would like to use what are known as livestock carriers between here and the West Coast. Currently, they ship their young cattle by what are known as cow on the container ships of Matson, and it's a very expensive way to ship their live animals to the west coast. They would like to use what the rest of the people in the world use, which are livestock carriers, but they all happen to be foreign flag and not Jones Act qualified. The problem that we have with the call for a one-year Jones Act waiver to bring domestic crude oil to the islands is that it's completely misleading and it's uh, we're wasting efforts that could be used for real Jones Act reform. Our basic position is, and one that we've had, a proposal that we've had in place since 2010, is that the non-contiguous jurisdictions of the United States that are encompassed by the Jones Act, namely Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, should be allowed to have to use foreign-built vessels registered under the U.S. flag and employing U.S. crews. And the reason for that is because the cost of constructing large ocean-going ships in the United States has escalated tremendously and is now on the order of five times what it is to build the same ship in South Korea.
0: So it would give the smaller shippers more of a
2: break. Right. What would happen is if, for example, Matson and Pasha, were to operate foreign-built U.S. flagships, their capital cost would be considerably lower, and they could offer lower freight rates. There's seven shipyards in the United States that build large, ocean-going ships, and only three of which construct commercial vessels. The remainder construct only naval vessels. And basically, all they're doing is they're building tankers and container ships, all the container ships under the Jones Act are employed in the non-contiguous trades, Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. They can't compete on the coastal trade around the main U.S. because their costs are much greater than is the case for truck and rail. It's in the case of what they're calling for, a one-year exemption for tankers, foreign flag tankers, basically to import crude oil from the U.S. West Coast. Number one, the law doesn't allow them to do that. The law restricts Jones Act waivers to a initial period of 10 days with extensions of 10 days each for a total of 45 days for any one set of circumstances. And so there's no way in the world that they could get a one-year waiver.
0: Based on the, on the reading of that law. Right. But, and, it's, but,
2: and it's highly unlikely that they would ever get even the first 10 days' worth of waiver. To your knowledge, has there ever been a waiver? There have been waivers, usually for petroleum products and also for crude oil on the East Coast, the East and Gulf Coast of the United States, and for Puerto Rico. OK. And
0: and in what cases were those used? What was the justification?
2: Usually uh, a weather emergency hurricane. That last series of hurricanes that, that hit Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, the Trump administration issued a Jones Act waiver to cover that.
0: But it was limited? Yes. And so the idea that President Biden would entertain the idea of a year exemption... Well, in the
2: first place, the year exemption is not provided for in law, and it's limited to 10 days. And the Biden administration is committed to supporting the Jones Act, and so they're highly unlikely to issue a waiver unless there were extreme circumstances.
0: Okay, so an executive order wouldn't trump the laws
2: written now? Uh, Yes, that's correct. And have you tried? I checked with people who have been involved with this sort of thing before in the White House. Their opinion was, if a president were ever to issue an executive order to override the existing statute, that the Jones Act industry, through their trade association, would sue immediately and in all likelihood would prevail. Our main reform proposal is to allow foreign-built, ships to be employed in what are known as the non-contiguous trades, providing the ships are registered as U.S. vessels, which means that they have to have U.S. ownership and U.S. crews. Most of the big shippers, meaning the big cargo owners, are either non-committal or supportive of our efforts.
0: Okay. Um, Gosh. I mean, is there anything else that you think would be important to know, um, just as people hear about the Jones Act and the calls for
2: waivers for us. Right. Well, the other side of the waiver, besides the legal one, is that there isn't much practical value in a Jones Act waiver to solve the current oil issues regarding high prices. In the first place, the price of oil and oil products in the United States are really part and parcel with the world market. And so our pricing is pretty much along the lines of what the rest of the world is paying for these things, these items.
0: So while maybe in the past, there had been some advantage that no longer exists?
2: Right, in the past from 1973 through 2015, there was a prohibition in federal law against exporting domestic crude oil. And that kept the price of U.S. crude and products artificially low during that period, throughout that period of time. But that no longer applies because the prohibition was lifted in 2015, and now the producers of domestic crude oil and other products are free to export their petroleum products.
0: Okay, but basically you're saying our
2: domestic pricing, pricing is Pricing the, is, is, high. The, is the same as the international. And the next issue on the practical side is that the U.S. is a net importer of crude oil, so we don't really have a true surplus nationwide from which a surplus can be drawn from to, su- to supply the Hawaii market in terms of domestic crude oil. So it's pretty tight. Yes, and it's especially tight on the West Coast. Both the Grassroots Institute and uh, Representative Case have mentioned drawing supply of crude oil from the west coast and representative case in particular from los angeles yes there is some domestic production of crude oil in california but california imports nearly 60 percent of their crude requirement every year so there is not a surplus of domestic crude oil and california makes up for the difference with imported crude there's no point in shipping domestic crude oil from California to Hawaii and then California making up the difference by importing foreign crude versus just simply importing foreign crude to Hawaii. Right, so they're saying, well, what's in it for us? <laughs> I mean, yeah. That would that <laughs> yeah. would only make the transi- transaction more
0: expensive. And that was Mike Hansen of the Hawaii Shippers' Council talking to us about the Jones Act and why it believes it needs to be revised, revamped, and why his members don't support a waiver. Our reality check today looks at the future of sandalwood Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Paula Dobbin joins us with that story good morning Paula good morning how are you good good so gosh we have a long history with sandalwood but uh, your story says there's a uh, the industry may be coming back
5: Um, yes there is definitely a major reforestation effort taking place on the Big Island Um, It's a company called doTERRA, which manufactures essential oils. Uh, They're based in Utah, but several years ago, they purchased a parcel of land um, south of Kona for, it was like a 9,600-acre parcel, I believe, and uh, it had a conservation easement on it that the state had acquired. So basically, that means that the, um, the land was restricted in terms of what could be done on it. Um, it had been um, originally a native sandalwood forest, but um, as you may know, um, the history of sandalwood is kind of a sad one. It was overexploited, overharvested for many decades in the 1800s, and uh, and then when that went wound down, uh, the land was used for cattle ranching, and uh, also a lot of feral uh, pigs and sheep and other other animals, including rats have. Really decimated um, what was left of the sandalwood, but um, because of this conservation easement and the purchase of the land by this company called DoTerra, uh, they're doing some innovative things to try to be- bring sandalwood back on that uh, parcel of land.
0: Yeah, I mean that's good news. I mean, you know, we're always hearing about how we need to plant more trees in Hawaii, and here's one company that's actually starting to do that.
5: Yeah, um, they got the land in, I think it was 2018, and they started a pretty massive uh, reforestation effort. They have a nursery on the property, and they've planted over 300,000 native trees, sandalwood and koa and other native species. Um, And they are manufacturing essential oil, but they're only using dead or dying sandalwood um, in that process. And they keep 75% of the land forested. That's part of the management plan that they have um, in place with the Department of Land and Natural Resources. So um, it's, a, it's an innovative project, and it seems to be going really well. And, um, you know, hopefully, we'll have more native sandalwood on the Big Island as a result of it.
0: Now, uh, your story talks about how they're tapping uh, something called a Forest Legacy Program,
5: Yes, uh, that's a program that is administered by the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, It's a competitive program um, that you can apply for if you have a parcel of land that you feel can be managed um, sustainably. Um, And in this case, the Department of uh, Land and Natural Resources of Hawaii applied um, to get this land um, in that pipeline of funding from the Forest Service, and they were successful. Um, and so um, with that we have this you know large piece of what was private land um, you know that is now being managed sustainably and there there are other examples of these forest legacy programs in the state of Hawaii um, on Oahu Maui and also on the big island so um, it's, it's a pretty cool effort to try to you know keep land that otherwise would be developed um, or degraded, you know, in in a sustainable forestry program. Um, with this parcel on the big island that doTERRA is managing, um, there had been a plan to develop that into like 500 homes and a golf course. Um, so with this project, you know, they're able to bring back the trees, they're able to control erosion, which is good for our water quality and coral reefs and things like that. So seems to be a win-win all around
0: yeah I mean uh, they plan to what Plant a million trees by 2030 so they're ambitious plans but um, you know they are also uh, you know kind of boosting the production side right I mean they just opened up a a new facility here on Oahu
5: yeah um, the aromatherapy sector of of the wellness industry is, is really booming apparently um, and so they are getting a lot of uh, customers on the, in Hawaii, and in order to facilitate shipping and kind of cut down on their carbon footprint, instead of having to ship a lot of stuff over, um, you know, to individual customers from the mainland, what they're doing is um, they've opened this fulfillment center in Oahu, and uh, you know, customers can pick up their products there as opposed to you know having them. Uh, shipped overseas or from, you know, the the mainland um, production center. So that just opened over the weekend.
0: Yeah, well, bright spot on the horizon. But thank you so much, Paula. You bet. Have a good day. And that was reporter Paula Domin with today's Reality check. You can re- read her story online at civilbeat.org.
4: support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Care Centers, providing primary care at multiple locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808-691-8200. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific,
3: environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
5: Hi, I'm Colleen Morrow, author of Spiritual Telepathy. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about ancient
0: techniques that will help you access the wisdom and guidance of your own soul.
2: Beginning Sunday
1: morning at 11.
0: I bet it's safe to say that we understand that our climate is changing, but do we have the data we need to adapt? Well, the National Science Foundation just awarded $20 million to the University of Hawaii to boost data science. Gwen Jacobs is with EPSCOR, the established program to stimulate competitive research. She tells the Conversation Savannah harriman Pope that the money will help give us a clearer picture of climate change in our islands. But is it enough to keep up
6: with the shifts that we're seeing in our environment? The University of Hawaii across all the campuses has has really an excellent group of faculty that are studying climate change. So there's many folks that are studying sea level rise, impacts of water sustainability, and others we chose to focus our research on a particular aspect of climate change, which is weather and how that is going to impact a number of different things um, across the state. So the, the scientific focus and what's important here is that we're combining climate scientists with data scientists to pull together these research teams. And we're focused on three different areas of importance to the state. One is to be able to take climate models that are used throughout say the mainland and also the world and be able to take those models and downscale them so those predictions are appropriate for Hawaii. We don't have those models now and that will be something really new and helpful to all of us, this will help us predict things like rainfall patterns in the future drought incidents of of flooding and others. The other area we're going to look at is how climate impacts our water balance through understanding how our native forests and other our mountainous areas help to capture additional water that comes into our resources. And also to understand how the various plant species that are present in our native forests and others how those are adapted to climate change because that's a really important mechanism for being able to understand how we capture water from the atmosphere, and also to study how that that water is actually stored in soil moisture. So soil moisture is important for understanding Uh, things like drought and also predicting floods. And then the third area of research is to try to understand better how our changing patterns of using the land in Hawaii impact both climate and our ability to sustain our natural resources, most importantly, our native forests and our water supplies. Let me explain it in a slightly different way. So we do have, say for example, over 40 years of data on rainfall patterns in Hawaii and how that's been changing. That gives us a historical idea of how things are changing and changing for the future. What we haven't had, and there's plenty of researchers that are doing really valuable research in in a bunch of different areas. What we haven't been able to do is to aggregate that data into a data portal that then others can use that data directly. There's been plenty of research that's been going on Some of the areas that I was talking about before, the climate models that need to be, it's called downscaling. So it's basically taking a climate model and making it work for Hawaii's environment. That is something that we have not had in the past, so that will be new. But making that data, aggregating it into a data portal that allows, say, a stakeholder to be able to come in and say, well, you know, I need to figure out what crops to plant. Or am I going to be facing drought if I'm a cattle rancher? This is the kind of data that we will be able to provide to the public, as well as as to use for, you know, publications and scientific discoveries as well. So that's the project in a nutshell.
7: (laughs) Do you think beyond just the scope of this project, that transition, getting knowledge about climate, or even just generally, out of scientific circles and into the hands of policymakers and the public is a shift that science needs to make generally.
6: Personally, I think it's essential. I think, you know, if we're doing scientific research, I mean, really it should be done for the benefit of the public and the benefit of, and in particular for EPSCOR, for the goal of the EPSCOR program, the goal is to create actionable information that is of benefit to the state. In choosing the topic to focus our EPSCOR program on, that was a conversation about what what do we really need to focus on now? Now I'll also say, That we also recognize a lot of the other great research that's going on, say on sea level rise, on ocean health, on coral reef research, all of those different areas will also be impacted by climate, but we chose to focus on kind of a subset of those things, but most importantly, what we want to do is to be able to get information about the weather and the changing weather, which is going to impact everything so being able to predict occurrence of wildfires, say, what's going on with Maui, with drought. Can we help to predict or at least be ready for the next set of floods that may hit Kauai? So that's the other part of it, is understanding enough about the changing climate to be prepared for the next unhappy event, (laughs) the next bit of bad news. One thing that many people don't know is that many of the products, these kinds of data products, Are available to scientists and stakeholders throughout the contiguous United States so on the mainland. There are plenty of efforts where this data is made available to doesn't matter what state you're in it's a national effort Hawaii is not part of that national effort. And also because Hawaii has a very interesting set of climates. So within just the small footprint of the Hawaiian Islands, we have very wet, you know, tropical moisture, we have desert, we have all range of of different kinds of microclimates. So being able to take those, those climate models that work well for the rest of the United States and it's called downscaling, make them appropriate for, for Hawaii. That gives us a whole new set of things, a whole new set of models that we can make predictions with. So that's that's very important. That's something that we haven't had and will come out of this project.
7: Mm. So it sounds like we have some catching up to do and $20 million with which to do it. We're looking at how, as you said, to descale the models that the continent has in terms of its climate data. Is there anything that we will be able to give back to the continent from our models, or perhaps looking outside the United States, other Pacific nations, other small islands?
6: i think much of what we will learn from this project will be directly applicable to other island environments where they have the same kinds of challenges that we do small land footprint relatively isolated different kind of climate zones so i think much of what we will do will be very helpful within the pacific people often say we're the you know canary in the coal mine so climate change is going to impact the island nations first. And so not that we want to be first in line for all that. But I think our model will help will certainly help Hawaii will certainly help other island nations and will also be a good example for the rest of the United States.
0: That was Gwen Jacobs EPSCOR's program director talking with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote about a $20 million reward from the National Science Foundation. The project change Hawaii aims to use data science to help our climate scientists with their research this is the conversation on listener supported hawaii public radio astronomer christopher phillips discusses nasa's recent botanical experiments can our plants grow in space hpr's dave lawrence joins phillips to bring you your monday stargazer
4: Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and things we might try and spot in the sky. As usual, we're so thankful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal, and wouldn't you know it, we got him on the line, too. Hey Chris, what's going on this week? And welcome back. What do we have?
3: Hey Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which continue to be visible in our eastern skies before dawn. The moon this week is a mere waning crescent and so conditions will be great for stargazing.
4: And this week you said you have an exciting one about gardening in space. Indeed I do. NASA has been undertaking a series of daring botanical experiments
3: recently to assess whether Earth plant species can grow in lunar dirt, or regolith as it's known. The answer has turned out to be a resounding yes, although there are some drawbacks. While initial growth showed promise, the plants became stunted and stressed during the later stages of development. Despite this drawback, the experiment showed that taking Earth plant species with us as we colonize the solar system is certainly possible.
4: And so what kind of stuff were they growing,
3: Chris? Well, they grew quite a variety, including mustard greens, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, and cabbage. These were selected for their small size, hardiness, and the fact that they are amongst some of the best studied plants on Earth, and also some of the most consumed.
4: And lunar soil, Earth soil, what's the differences there exactly? Well, the
3: key difference has to be nutrients. Earth soil is rich in minerals, water, and organic matter. Lunar regolith, on the other hand, is mostly composed of lesser amounts of minerals, and of course, no... organic matter at all
4: and what would be involved with trying to overcome and deal with that up there well it's entirely possible that we could
3: ship in complex organics from earth to enrich the lunar soil or in the near future it may be possible to genetically tailor our plants to grow in lunar regolith
4: or we could build like special spaceships that were giant dump trucks filled with dirt and just haul it up there (laughs) dump it all on the moon (laughs) (laughs) whole new industry and the plants not just about food more to it huh indeed Studies have shown undoubtedly that being surrounded by plants is good for
3: one's mental health, as well as oxygen purification. By growing plants on the moon and Mars, we may well be providing a critical mental health accessory that would otherwise be lacking in the sterile environments of space colonies.
4: A fun one, Christopher Phillips and Stargazer this week. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find that at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi. Architects for the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authorities Hawaii Gateway Energy Center in Kailua Kona, Ferrarochoi.com.
0: For today's backyard quiz, we asked if you knew what the second widest state in the country is. The widest, of course, is Alaska. One might think Texas or Montana might might be next on the list, but it's actually our state, Hawaii, that is the second-widest state in the country. And it is the answer to today's backyard quiz. From Curie Atoll at the westernmost edge of the northwest Hawaiian islands to the most eastern point on Hawaii Island's Hilo Coast, our island chain stretches just over 1,500 miles. Of course, that includes the ocean that lies between each island. Uh, and congrats to our winner, Wayne from the Punch Bowl, Pu'u'aina area. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Ko'olawe was once home to a thriving native Hawaiian dryland forest and at least 11 wetlands. The island's native ecosystems have yet to recover from decades of military bombing, overgrazing, and large wildfires. The island also loses 1.9 million tons of topsoil through wind and uh, rain erosion every year. In its efforts to heal the land, the Ko'olawe Island Reserve Commission has begun using a high-carbon form of charcoal called biochar, the conversation Lillian Tsang sat down with the commission's natural area resource specialist, uh, James Brooke, to learn more.
8: On um, Lave, where the soil is already degraded, much of the topsoil has been lost. Right now, we're dealing almost with just not necessarily bare rock, but we call it bare hardpan. So the hardpan has almost zero nutrients, and these are areas that we're trying to restore on an ecological level. And so we've been using soil amendments and fertilizer for many years to try to get plants to grow in these areas. One of the things we're trying to do through this project is move away from commercial and chemical fertilizers and soil amendments and look at something that's more natural, it's easier to make, it's something possibly that we can make on Kahoa And so that's why we began this project.
7: And that natural technique you're testing Is a carbon-based soil additive introduced to you by Joe Imhoff?
8: Yeah, Joe, our partner with Wukio Farms and Skyline Conservation Initiative, which is located on Maui, came out last summer as a volunteer, and he brought a bag of biochar, and he suggested that we use it in place of our soil amendment. And so it kind of began the process of using it as a soil amendment as opposed to some of the commercial soil amendments and fertilizers that we were using to see if it would work for our restoration goals.
7: Okay, so how do you source the biochar?
8: The process to create biochar is through something called pyrolysis, basically biomass that's been turned into almost 100% carbon using high temperatures and zero oxygen. And you're creating almost a charcoal-like substance, and so all of the carbon, instead of escaping into the atmosphere, through smoke and steam. It is contained within the biomass or hardwoods itself. There's some additional science that goes into it. So Ukio farms, they add probiotics and micronutrients into the biochar, which creates a living environment for microorganisms. And another thing that we're doing is we're going through the native leaf litter, which is basically decomposing on its own. So if you've ever been in your garden and dug around into the leaf litter or decomposing bark, you can see that the base layers have more moisture and you might see kind of a spider web looking material. And that is mycelium. And that is, it's a living fungus. It's the it's the things we don't see what's going on into the soil. And just full disclosure, I am by no means an expert on biochar. I'm learning about it through this project myself. Joe, he's the lead scientist on the biochar aspect.
7: And you've also been helping the soil with compost teas made from worm castings and leaf litter. Now, since last summer, when you first started talking about this, and you have been boots on the ground applying his science, what's your takeaway so far?
8: So the initial tests that we've done out there are soil tests. And so the first thing that we noticed was The soil cores that were collected, the treated soil core had almost 25% more moisture content than the untreated. And so that is one of the advantages of using biochar as a soil amendment, is it's going to retain a lot more moisture, and that's going to become available to the plant.
7: Koholave is a dry island. How much rainfall do you guys get?
8: It's extremely dry. It's considered arid. We're lucky to get maybe 25 inches on an annual basis, and that's on the considered the wet side of the island. On the dry side, sometimes we'll only get half that amount. And that's the areas that we're experimenting with this biochar technique because we don't have the rain catchment on the dry side of the island. So like many other areas in Hawaii, drought is a problem. And on Caho'olawe, where the soil is already degraded, drought is a huge problem. And we don't have the water resources to run irrigation to a lot of the sites. The island is 45 square miles, and so we have to restore the entire island. So we're working with 45 square miles, very little water. And so anything that we can do to improve the soil health is going to be beneficial for ecological restoration.
7: Your research shows that with the addition of biochar, topsoil is able to support plants with a healthier microbiome.
8: Yes, definitely. There's more nutrients and water available to these seedlings. At least that's something that we're trying to either prove or disprove. And I wanted to mention that the biochar grant is being funded through a program called Pacific Birds Habitat Joint Venture and that's through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife.
7: And what are your hopes for this project and the future of the Kirk Restoration Program?
8: So with our restoration program, what we found that just by doing native outplanting, other native species will appear like invertebrate life. So one of our philosophies is if you build it, they will come. Just by outplanting a'ali'i, we've discovered butterflies and koa bugs which are Native Hawaiian insects and other new species, some endemic just known to Cahoolave. So the more we look on a micro level, the more we find and so looking at it holistically we want to also restore the soil to a native environment that self regenerates on its own. So I guess my hope is to try to create a restoration process, that will not only help the island, but it'll help bring back native Hawaiian species.
7: You have been with the commission since 2003. How has the island changed just in your own experience for all this time?
8: There's definitely more vegetation out there. We've developed techniques to do restoration on almost every part of the island. And so just seeing the vegetation come back is a good thing. We do have to compete with invasive species so we kind of have to pick our battles on which invasive species to keep, which invasive species do we use. Like the chiave can be used as mulch or we can turn it into biochar. And some species we are trying to eradicate completely. And one of the exciting developments that happened is we created a partnership with the University of Hawaii. And so they have a soil health lab and a UH geophysics lab that we've been partnering with and so we're able to take our soil and have it tested at the university and they're going to look at it for different components to look at soil health so we'll have a really good metric of how the biochar is improving the soil versus commercial soil amendments or soil that is just completely left bare. We have techniques for outplanting in almost every area, even areas that have been cleared with unexploded ordnance. We have a technique to outplant in areas like that. We build up the soil from the ground up. We don't actually do any digging, so this is just another technique that we're trying to employ for restoration.
0: That was James Brooke of the Kaho'olawe Island Reserve Commission's restoration team talking with HPR's and Song. The first phase of the biochar project to test its effects on Kaho'olawe's topsoil runs through June. We will have links on the conversa- conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, we're out of time today, but tomorrow we plan to learn more about efforts to uh, encourage the use of electric vehicles across the state. Do you have an idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Missed something and want to listen back to something you heard today? Well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.